Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Richard Bates. Richard is the CEO of Qualitrain Group. Richard, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Morning, Scott. Thank you very, very much indeed for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure having you, Richard. Now, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to understand your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader on its own for a moment, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates. Leadership. um, My opinion, leadership is determined by others. Um, And what I mean by that is you can't determine how many people are going to follow you. Um, I think it's important that a leader does create a vision of what the future is going to look like and, uh, and has an ability to, to infuse the team, ability to motivate, drive people towards a shared goal. That's, um, that's what I usually find with um, uh, leadership. Um, it, it's also the ability to get them to share in building and shaping that, um, that future future state, the future goal. Give them give them the opportunity to show their worth in front of the colleagues and peers. Um, obviously for, for all that to work as an as a leader, I think you need to ensure that you've created a good balanced team. And um, uh, with, with a balanced team, what what I usually do and it has been created by uh, over time that we um, we have um, a quite a quite a rounded um, team of people w- within our uh, senior management board that have got a whole range of different abilities. Um, I always think it's important to pick pick people who are better than yourself at certain certain jobs. You can't you mm. can't always be the one that that drives and uh, the, the ship all the time. Um, I think it's important not to be insecure and encourage them to shine and do the best that they can. Uh, you always seem to get a uh, better results by doing that. Mm, I think you're um, absolutely right in saying that. Very much so, Richard, for sure. Uh, also, uh, once you, you create in the future, make sure you wrap that future for your business around a set of good ethics, mm. uh, good morals, good moral values. We have we have our core values that we use within our within our group, and we invited all our team to take part in creating those core values so we we have respect honesty loyalty integrity support inspiration if you can build those core values around everything that you're doing within your business and and put that across to your customers then that that's the good a good grounding for creating a, a good organization and once you've got uh, an idea of what you, uh, your shared future is going to look like and you've created that strategy, that image, it's very important then to have good policies and practices for for rolling that out. Uh, Again, we always ensure that all our team are fully engaged in in identifying that. So uh, what what we tend to do, being an organization that um, uh, our core um, uh, core practices include uh, lean and six sigma principles we we use 
policy deployment uh, methods and ex matrices to roll out what that future is going to look like. So it, it allows us then to um, share um, th those practices with the team. And um, uh, another important part of that is, is then knowing, knowing metrics as well for once you've created that, that future state, what's it going to look like, create the metrics together so everybody within the team then is, is fully aware of, of what's expected of them. So there's no gut feel. The, the value, uh, the, the, the key performance indicators, the metrics that come out of the business uh, can then be used to, uh, in, in openness uh, with, with the team and we can, we can look to drive and improve the business. Um, it's very important that we give feedback on where the business is going based on that and we, we review it with the team regularly the standardization event probably twice a year um, this coronavirus has put a little bit of uh, stoppage on that but um, uh, we also um, let them know that we're all in this together uh, so another thing about leadership I, I think it's very important not to be afraid of getting in the trenches with them from time to time as well. So if, if you have to step in uh, and get involved in, in areas that you've not done for a while, don't be afraid to do that. Just just do it. And I think that, in in a nutshell, is it makes a, a good leader. Good vision. Give them good vision. Let them share in that vision. Create the people and the systems around it. And um, don't be afraid to get in the trenches with them there are so many important elements there oh richard for sure and you touched very briefly on of course um the uh, the current situation covid19 and the fact that business leaders leaders of governments leaders of organizations are having to feel their way through what's ultimately an unprecedented crisis during this time if we go into a little yeah. bit more detail on that from a leadership point of view how has it been sort of adapting behind the scenes to the challenges that that's brought about because i can imagine for the likes of yourselves it has been a real challenge it's been a massive challenge where um, from the education industry, we, we've really felt the impact of this. Right from March, um, most of our clients tend to be in the manufacturing sector. Uh, we, um, from being based in Derby, where we, we tend to be uh, planes, trains and automobiles focused. So most of, most of the supply chain uh, into two organisations like Bombardier and Rolls Royce and Toyota, uh, they've been heavily affected as well. And I, I, I think um, those organisations are still uh, pretty much in um, a state of where, especially the automotive industry, we found that getting back in, back back into business very quickly. And of course, if they don't get in, we can't train the guys. So uh, it, it's been very very difficult for us. So what we found we've we've had to do. Um, in order, the most important thing for us is to ensure that we get out of this with all our, our staff and associates' jobs intact. That's, that's my ambition. And our ambition as a senior team is to, to ensure that we, we achieve that. I think if we can prove that we've done that, that we've got something out of this whole orange mess uh, and something to be proud of. And if, if I can do that, then that, that's what we're going to do. So what we've done We've reassessed our markets. Um, we, we've looked at uh, SWOT analysis against the current situations uh, for each of our businesses within the quality training group. 
Um, we've identified uh, the extent of what our current um, ability is to generate a, an income stream with with the businesses. So where we can retain an income stream, we've, we've done that. Um, if it, um, we've been reliant on the furlough, that's been absolutely essential for us as a business. Uh, but at one point, seventy-five percent of the team were on furlough, but we're introducing them back now as as our customers are getting um, uh, more confident of, of coming back into the marketplace. We do think, however, that there will be um, uh, for those that are still kept out on on uh, furlough. Uh, some of them might not get back. We have there has been some very very good movement, both for organisations like Bombardier, who we work with. There's a lot of uh, call for uh, initial training of people to go on to um, help build the trains and, and the wiring looms. Uh, so we've, we've had a, uh, a big surge in those numbers, which has been very, very good for, for our business to help um, uh, sustain an income. We've recognised uh, as, a, as a team that uh, we need to change and adapt very quickly to modern technology. Um, while the team has been um, on furlough, we've been uh, asking them uh, to learn and develop uh, their IT skills around delivering online, creating videos, um, and all, all, the, all the types of training activities that we need to do online in future. And that, that's been... That's been really, really um, vital for us to do that, to um, use our time um, effectively to safeguard our business for the future. And given the impact um, that the pandemic as well has had on working practices during this time, what role do you think, Richard, the office environment will actually play in the future of work, both within Qualitrain and also within the wider world? Um, to, to be honest, uh, we're, we're finding uh, that working from home is probably uh, far easier for the team now. Um, that we've, we've had this discussion with them, and some of them uh, are quite happy that they want to get back into the office because it's the it's the social it, it's the social interaction that they enjoy. Um, uh, so. I'm, I'm quite happy to keep the, uh, the office open, but I'm also quite happy to look at flex, flexible ways of working for any of our team. If our team feel that they need to work from home for whatever reason, uh, I've got no objection with that. It, it, you, you tend to get a lot more done when you're working from home. You haven't got the travelling around. We've noticed that um, our teams that usually spend one to two hours a day driving to a client and, and then... Um, doing a doing a teaching session and driving back, uh, we haven't had uh, the, the, there isn't any of the travel expenses. Uh, it, it's obviously better for the um, for, for the country for the for the climate as well. Um, so we, we've got no no problems whatsoever with our teams working flexibly from offices uh, or from home. Uh, and I think that's the way it's going to go. We certainly won't be looking at expanding our office sites, possibly classroom facilities. We might need to increase those because uh, the classroom facilities, we, because of the social distancing, uh, um, we, we've had to increase that quite considerably. Um, and and rent, rent rooms out. 
uh, with the advent of the, the one metre rule coming back in, I don't really think uh, that that's going to make much difference because um, um, we, we're still going to need some element of social distancing moving forward with, with the classrooms on that. And thinking about what the long-term future holds now over maybe the next 12 to 18 months, what do you envision, Richard, um, as we move through the pandemic and into the new normal for both yourself and for Qualitrain? And what do you really hope to achieve? Well, what we've um, set out, we've set out a goal. Uh, our, um, our goal is to uh, change and develop new income streams based on, on what we've, we've, we've uh, during this, this um uh, shut down the, um, the the lockdown that we've had. We've totally refocused and we've built new IT systems. Uh, we've uh, set on uh, marketing consultants to help us in, the, in this new uh, move moving forward. And uh, what we're looking at is uh, increasing and improving our abilities to deliver online training. And we've found we've identified something that's going to be quite unique uh, that we can uh, offer. Uh, to industry, but uh, I hope that that will become our driving income stream. But it will take approximately a year to get to a stage where it's gone from development into into market. So we're putting all the infrastructure in place to get there. And uh, in, in the meantime, we're, we're supporting the growth of that with our existing income streams. But we can see that the world's changing. And it's changing towards where where we're taking it with the e-learning, and uh, so our future is going to be based around e-learning. It's going to be a very interesting time. It certainly seems, uh, Richard. And you know, it's one thing speculating about the uh, the future, and obviously knowing that there are plans in place, and it's another actually analysing what goes on in the uh, the time between. Given the fact that there are so many variables, and given the nature of the plans that Qualitrain has, I think it would be great to actually catch up and have you back on the program in the next year or so, just to understand what has gone on and just catch up on how the business is getting on behind Fine, the scenes as well. It would be great to talk to you about it. It really would. Uh, we're, we're very enthusiastic and. Um, uh, I've got every single one of the team fully behind it, um, and uh, it, uh, so our ambition is to get everybody back on board. And I think um, um, the help that we've had from the government with the, the furlough, then um, I'm sure that we'll be able to do that. Mm. We'll certainly um, look to uh, catch up in the future for sure, Richard, because it's been a real pleasure having you on uh, today's programme. It's a shame we're just about out of time. Otherwise, we could discuss these issues long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, but thank you ever so much uh, for joining us. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, even though things are starting to gradually get back to some form of normal. Thank you very much indeed, Scott. Really appreciate the time that you've uh, offered me this morning. That was Richard Bates speaking, the CEO of Qualitrain Group. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished speaking with him. That is coming up next. 
Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively and i hope that the leaders council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common a synergy in terms of what they're delivering whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever uh, will be able to see that there's a a a good outcome from knowing the sector better linking with people not just geographically locally but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system uh, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence with the ability to pull teams around them above all to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it now of course one of the biggest problems secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-semitism problem uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does secure need to do in response well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.